Stay hungry, stay foolish. If approximately 70% of all businesses are family businesses, and two out of three don't survive to the next generation, what can you do to make sure your business will survive and thrive? Today's episode comes clean with much-needed info on the nitty-gritty issues such as entitlement, letting employees, even family members go, compensation, including your kids in the business, shareholder agreements, selecting the next leader, deciding whether to keep the business or sell it, exit strategies for outgoing leaders, money matters, succession planning, communication, conflict resolution, establishing an effective board and transitioning to the next generation. We can apply the numerous ideas and tips in this engaging guide to address any business situation, family or otherwise. We welcome author of 30 Little Secrets of Family Business, ensuring success from one generation to the next, Henry Hutchison. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Aiden. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. I love the way, Henry, you opened the book with a great quote from Tolstoy. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. You say this is the same for family businesses. You know, I encounter lots of family businesses, have encountered lots of family businesses, and every family all by itself is unique. It's just the nature of having the dynamics of those family dynamics that are going on, and then you throw a business on top of it, and it gets complicated. But So there are rules of the road on trying to help them, and there's history, and there's learning, but each family business problem is unique to itself. You know, it has its own problem and its own unique solutions that they're trying to find. So yeah, that's pretty much true. What I love about the book is that there's so many valuable tips and tools for every type of business, leaders, employees, also parents as well. There's so much good stuff in here. But when people see the term family business, they often think of a small mom and pops business. But you tell us 70% of all businesses are family businesses. And family businesses historically have accounted for the largest portion of new jobs created, a significant percentage of gross domestic product, and a good chunk of Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, it's about a third of Fortune 500 companies. I mean, if you look at Walmart, you look at Ford, you look at Mars, SC Johnson, these are gigantic companies that family members still sit in the background and have maybe not the majority of the shares, but maybe they've got board seats or whatever. So they are still controlled and influenced by the families. And it's true. There's lots of small family businesses out there. But any business that got started from somewhere, you typically drag your family members in. And, uh, you know, if you're smart and you're lucky, it turns into something. And There was a Forbes or Fortune article that came out probably four or five years ago of America's richest families. And you go through this list and virtually 90% of them are all originally family businesses. So... For the family businesses out there that are struggling to make it happen, maybe you'll be the richest family in your country one day. There's a famous Andrew Carnegie quote, which is shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations and many variants of that throughout different countries throughout the world. But 65% of family business don't survive to the next generation. Let's share a bit about this. There's a huge problem with this and you address a lot of these problems in this book. Yeah, you know, the shirt sleeve to shirt sleeves is, unfortunately, it's a little bit of a misnomer and I will tell you why. Basically, two-thirds of family businesses fail, and this has been measured through an organization called FFI since, I think, the late 70s or something. They take a group of family businesses, and then they come back to them, um, they, you know, are you a family business? They come back after a transition of leadership or ownership 
three to five years later and two thirds of them are not in existence anymore. So that's obviously not a good thing. But I think the reason why people think it's three generations, so it's each generation loses two thirds. But if you get a startup business and they transition to the second generation and they go out of business, you know, you and I may not have heard of them in the first place. So we don't know they're going out of business. But if you went from generation one to generation two to generation three, the awareness of that family business is out there now. So when that thing actually goes under, everybody knows about it. But, and at the same time, you take 100 family businesses, you transition, lose two-thirds. Now you're only left with 33 family businesses. You transition those, and now you're only down to about 10%, right? Out of 100, those aren't good odds. You tell us the number one reason that family businesses break down is a lack of trust in the business. It is, and that always amazes people, and it amazed me when I finally got under it because there are so many contributing factors. But the reason why, the way that I kind of portray this is good performing family businesses outperform non-family businesses on a number of financial metrics. And people are surprised about that. And I said, the reason why is trust. When you've got a group of people that are owners and they all trust each other and you can take the left side and I'll take the right side and you take the middle and we're all working as owners together, then you've really got a lot of power in running this business as opposed to I am in charge and you guys do what I say and other people are just doing their work. And people struggle with that a little bit. But then you come back and say, okay, now remove the trust. Let's say that everybody's suspicious of each other. So now you can see that if you remove the trust, there's no way you could possibly perform at that level. There's long-term planning. There's long-term investing. People are dedicated to working for the family business. All those things matter, but none of them matter as much as the trust. And so once you lose the trust, you're really heading down the wrong way. This one's so relevant for anybody working in an organization, but extra relevant for a family business because it's so personal in many cases. And you say making mistakes is unavoidable. And once a level of success and stability is achieved, there usually is no manual on how to run the business because it's all in the founder's head. And this is a challenge for so many family businesses is getting what's in the founder's head out onto the table and then spreading it throughout the business. It's true. It's generation one to generation two. The failure rate, so while about 66% they fail, they come from pretty different reasons. One to two is making that big transition from an entrepreneurial, risk-taking, typically a very dynamic, had some luck, is bright, made this business happen, but they really don't know exactly why it happened. They just, they have, they have, they have what it takes to make it work. They got a little luck and this thing is working and so let's keep doing more of it. They drag their kids in, other relatives, and they say, okay, what do I need to do? He or she says, go do this and go do that. And everybody's making money and everything's great. But you really don't know why. You don't have any systems. You don't have your procedures. You don't have any processes. You just do what the leader tells you to do and everything's going to be good. Moving forward, however, you're the gas of beer and the entrepreneurialism of the founder can't continue because the founder can't continue forever. And then going to the next generation, you get this answer that comes back of, why are you doing it this way? And the answer is always, well, we do it this way because this is the way dad always did it. But they really don't understand why. So the tricky thing is to be able to set up policies, procedures, repeatable procedures, and having some governance and having some structure and drawing boundaries having roles and responsibilities on how we're going to actually run the business. Because in the future, 
the founder is not going to be here and you've got to extract all of that out. If you don't, that's when you start to get into trouble because everybody debates what did dad really mean about this, that, or the other thing. One of the things I wanted to share with you was uh, I think one of the most frustrating things as being a consultant is when you create a good strategy for a business and you know it's going to be put in a drawer never to be seen again. Right. Working in innovation, I found that the people who took the work the most seriously and the people who would put it into place were family businesses because they were usually owners or second generation or third generation owners at the helm. And they were always thinking long term. And that long term thinking is one of the huge advantages that family businesses have. It really is. And a lot of that, if you've got a family business, and I deal with this with all of my clients, you've got the current generation, they're thinking about retiring, they have all these investments that they need to make. In a normal non-family business, you want to extract all of the value out of this thing and be on your way. When in reality, you know there's this great investment that you need to make, and it's not going to come to fruition for a period of time. But hey, when I die, all of my wealth is going to go to my kids anyway. And if my kids are in my business, great. Let's keep the goose that's laying the golden egg healthy and strong, so I'm going to invest in the goose. Maybe I'm not getting the eggs. I've gotten all the eggs that I need, but the goose continues to lay eggs for my family, and that's the whole point, isn't it? And let's move on to some of the solutions that you put in place to ensure success in family businesses. And one in particular you call conflict resolution before family revolution. This is where you tell us about the importance of communication. And let me step back a little bit. It's difficult to be in a family all by itself. A family kind of has a generational hierarchy. Mom and dad are kind of in charge. You've got kids and then whoever's oldest kind of has more authority just because they've been around longer. And everybody's got a different personality, so they bring that to bear. And so every family has this unique dynamic that goes on, and there's the black sheep of the family, and then there's jealousy that goes on, and there's sibling rivalry that goes on. And So that's over in bucket number one. Over in bucket number two, you've got this business that's supposed to make profit. I mean, that's at the bottom line. As long as it's not illegal, and as long as we're kind of being moral and ethical, you compete in the marketplace and try to make money. You put these two things together, and now you've got two problems on top of each other. So now here I am working with my child or working for my parent, and maybe something from a business aspect is not going the way it's supposed to go. When you're having to deal with a family member on this, you don't want to hurt their feelings because they're part of the family and you love them. And oh, by the way, all this family baggage gets dragged up. So... A lot of communication gets shut down at a minimum because you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And so you just don't say things that need to get said. And then when finally something big happens, there's this blow up because you just can't hold back anymore. When family businesses learn to communicate well with each other, you can talk about the things that you need to talk about from a business perspective without worrying about hurting each other's feelings because you know it's not personal. It's just a business thing, but you have to establish good and regular communication in order to make that happen. And hey, families aren't designed to communicate well, and businesses by their nature are not designed to communicate well. So it takes an extra effort to be able to communicate well with each other. This is interesting, that when in doubt, include everyone. So include spouses, partners, etc., Right. And that's, that's kind of around family meetings. You know, the whole family has some level of influence. When you have a family, everybody's included in the family. It's not like who's invited to Thanksgiving. 
or who's invited to Christmas. Everybody's invited because you're part of the family, right? So when you're having a family meeting and you've got this business that generates income and well-being for many of the family members and even the family members that are not working there, if you're talking about global issues with the family business, like I'm going to transition it from one generation to the next or I'm deciding that I'm going to you know, leave the business to your brother because he's really good at doing this thing and you're going to be an owner, so on and so forth, you really do need to include everybody in those big decisions. Now, that's not to say every single meeting when you're talking about certain details, everybody needs to be there. Heck, everybody's not going to want to be there. But everybody needs to feel like they can be included. You give a brilliant list of suggestions for every family business that they should follow. But one thing that I thought was really interesting, also interesting for anybody with a family, it doesn't matter, or any group of individuals you're bringing together, is to create a manual, kind of a, a rules of engagement. What behaviors are tolerable? What way do we want to show up? how we should behave, all that type of thing. We call that a code of conduct. When we introduce it, I'm going to be introducing one here in a couple of weeks to a family. I typically don't let them know about it. I just say, hey, we're going to go through an interesting exercise. It'll be fun. And I take them through an exercise where at the core of it, when everybody individually writes down on a piece of paper by themselves in the room, what are some of the things that we can do as a family, individually and as a group, to improve our communication. It can be things that we need to do more of or things we need to do less of. And so individually, everybody gets to write down their little thing about, hey, I don't like it when my brother does this thing, but they're not going to say it's my brother. When dad yells at me, I shut down or whatever it may be. And everybody writes it down in the privacy of their piece of paper. But then I ask them to share all of that individually, one at a time. And so they're looking at me when they're really referring to one of their family members. So it's a really easy way to get some of this stuff out and on the table. So we write all of that down. We have a great discussion about it. And once you get that all written down, you kind of clean it up, put a title on it, and you call it the code of conduct. We say, hey, this is the thing that we, if we can do all of this stuff, then we'll be able to communicate better if you won't do these things and you'll show up to meetings on time and turn your phone off when you're in the meeting and whatever these things may be. Each one is different, unique to every family business. But it's great to have as a living document for the family as they go forward to help them communicate. Moving on, there's a headline you share in the book, which we'll explain in a second. P. Diddy buys $360,000 car for his son's 16th birthday. And you say, what a way to mess up a kid, because this creates a sense of entitlement and it's a sure way to destroy a family business and a kid's mentality. You know, I really should follow up on on his kid because that's a... He's probably 26 by now, but I don't know how old he is. But, you know, the point, I, I, I say that, I share that with everybody to kind of make the point that when you're bringing your kid into the family business, you know, b- before they finish their schooling, before they finish their schooling, bring them in, let them work, let them do what they do, you know, give them, a, give them as much responsibility as you have or they can handle, you know, and pay them a reasonable amount of money because it's just a summer job, right? It's just a part-time job. So let them get a feel for the business, you get a feel for them, et cetera, et cetera. But once they actually finish their schooling, A, they should go work somewhere else for a period of time. But if and when they come back, you need to start them at the bottom and you need to start them in an appropriate place. They need to interview as anybody else would come into the business and work their way up. Now, that's not to say that you can't rotate, rotate them through departments and groom them in order to one day become something. But many times, family business owners 
love their kid, don't want them to suffer, don't want them to be in pain. And so they give them a title and more responsibility than they can actually handle and they're qualified for. And they particularly pay them a salary that's not appropriate for their position. And then they start thinking, hey, I'm good at this thing because my dad's good at this thing and my dad's an owner. And so one day I will be an owner, even though I may not be good at it. And now you engender an attitude of, I am good at this business because my family, my bloodline, my genetics. When in reality, people are only good at what they do when they demonstrate they're actually good at what they can do, right? There's experience and education and so on and so forth, but can you actually do the work and can you actually do the work well? That's all that really matters. And promoting your kid too fast is, is a bad thing to do. There's a great line I pulled from the book, which is, raising a child with the appropriate balance of confidence and humility is certainly a challenge. Next time you're faced with a decision and don't know which choice would be best, ask yourself, what would a super entitled person choose? And then choose the opposite. And you say here, whether it's started with the parents or not, this sense of entitlement, the change must come from the parents. And it's true. The parents, I mean, you're a parent and you have a child and is there a genetic component to kids that tend to be more entitled than others? Possibly, but certainly a parent can increase or decrease your child's perspective on the meaning of life and the value of work and what it takes to get ahead and that you know hard work actually is necessary in order to get ahead. And yes, there will be some sacrifice and there will be some pain involved. That's why they call it work. And oh, by the way, you don't want to go the other way either. I've seen it the opposite way where, hey, I don't want my kid to be entitled, and so I'm going to stick him in a ditch and make him work, 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 work for nothing, 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 nothing. And the kid's like, I'm sick of this, and I'm out of here, right? So you don't want to go to the extreme opposite end either. So that's why the confidence-humility balance is so important. You need to strike the right balance in the middle. Yeah, and there's a great analogy you draw here with the Wisconsin National Primate Research Center that showed that the highest correlation to long life is to virtually starve yourself. And the reason you share this is that the body finds a way to function extremely efficiently with few resources. And you use this as an analogy to say, most entrepreneurs started this way. They had limited resources. We always talk about it on this show from an innovation perspective. Constraints can be good because constraints let you know what you have to work with. If you have an infinite choice, that makes things much more difficult. Most companies start out of, I don't have a job, I, maybe there's some desperation involved, and I take a chance to see if something can happen, and I make it work out of, I make something work out of nothing. My mother's family business, so my father had a family's business, but my mother's family business started with my grandfather borrowing a camera and taking a picture, and the guy gave him a nickel in order to put five cents down, five cents when you pick it up. He needed that first nickel to go buy film, so when the guy came back the next day, he said, hey... I'm sorry it did, the picture didn't take, but I'll take it again for free because now he had the nickel to take the picture, right? He needed that first nickel. But that's part of when you're raising your kids in the business is don't give them the easy way out. I know it's painful as a parent to watch your child have to suffer, but we all know on the inside that the only way you become really good at something is to have to struggle through it because that's when you really know and learn what it takes to do something right? Don't give them the easy path. And so giving them a difficult path and putting them into the hard, difficult projects and letting them fail and accepting failure and letting them learn from some of these failures as well, develops them into becoming 
a highly functioning individual in the business and as a person. One of the things you share as an antidote for entitlement is encouraging philanthropy. It is. And a lot of families and family businesses do this. And this is kind of incorporating it into part of your life. It's a bigger philosophical question, if you will. Is that, hey, there's people out there that don't have much. And so while we work and we make money, um, let's realize that there are folks in the world that don't have the opportunities that we have. And so incorporating some giving back component, whether it's physically going down to the soup kitchen or taking a piece of money and donating it to a good cause, that bounces back at you and helps you realize that, hey, that could be me and not everybody makes it. And I am lucky and I have a gift of my skills and this business and so on and so forth. And so you appreciate what you have more by understanding that not others have these opportunities or abilities that we have. And so that's another good way of engendering the appropriate mentality. And you talk about as well the storytelling at the kitchen table, Thanksgiving, etc. Talking about the hard days to remind the current generation, or maybe it's the next generation, maybe it is the third generation at the dinner table, that things weren't always this way. We're circling back a little bit to generation one to two and two to three, whereas generation one to two is typically because you've got this founder who's dynamic and has it all in his or her head. And then the next generation never really learned how to do this thing from a functional perspective because dad's not here anymore. We always just did what dad did. But when you get to, let's say you get past that, right? Let's say you did learn it and you're also pretty good and you use that platform and build further. When you get to the third generation, many times there's money around, right? And so the third generation is born um, with babysitters and dad's driving a nice new BMW and mom and dad are in charge of um, you know, running a company and they're in charge of a bunch of people's lives, right? So my parents is powerful. My parent has money. My parent gets to take time off. My parent is an owner. Um, and there's money around. And so this is where the sense of entitlement can come in. And because you're the third generation, you can get disconnected with the hard work that it took in the first generation to make this thing happen. And because you get disconnected from that, you think that, hey, this is the way it always has been and the way it always will be. Connecting those stories back to what happened in the early days create that um, that vision of what it took to get here and the, the continuance of that vision going into the third and fourth and fifth generation. I think this is very relevant to many listeners to this show. We often talk about parenting in this world of abundance. And one of the difficulties for many of us is making sure we're not lawnmower parents or helicopter parents paving the way too much for the children, but equally giving them a comfortable life, but not too comfortable because you want them to have that little bit of grit so they can survive in life because that's the way life is. Right. But moving on then from parenting to innovation, one of the biggest challenges for many innovators or change makers or corporate entrepreneurs in businesses is selling their idea. So either selling it to the status quo, selling it to an incumbent CEO, whatever it might be. But this is also a huge challenge in family businesses where the current generation or the former generation are resisting the new ideas of the next. It's the big question of the day, and we don't have enough time to cover this, but every generation has a generational gap. I had it with my parents, my parents had it with them, and so on and so forth. But it seems to be rather acute now because of the advent of the internet and communications and you know smartphones. And so 
when I grew up, we had a few channels on the television, and my parents didn't have a television, and so on and so forth. But the leap in technology is so big now that, frankly, us baby boomers are struggle to keep up with it. And there's actually a book out there that talks about how little us baby boomers realize, even though we're smart, how much change is going on. But there's a balance here, and it, a lot of it, you know, it's a 50-50 thing. Um, I'm a young kid, I'm coming up, and I've got my ideas. And these ideas in these days are, are pretty out there because of the way the world is these days. But the nature of the current generation is that, hey, I've built this thing up, I've made it work, I've got it stabilized, and now I need you to do exactly what I do in order for this thing to keep going. Which, I'm not going to say nothing could be further from the truth, but it's pretty close. Because you can't train somebody, training somebody to do exactly what you do is only going to work if, if it were frozen in time today. But the fact of the matter is, is the company is going to be five years later and 10 years later and 20 years later. And I'm, the current generation won't be here then. You need to train your kids to be able to deal in a world that's 20 years from now. But as the current generation, I don't really know what 20 years is going to be like. My kid has a better feel for it. So I guess the point is, for the current generation, you've got to force yourself to be more open-minded on some of these ideas that seem kind of crazy to enable them to explore some of that stuff. You don't go nuts. You can't let them do crazy stuff. There are basic business fundamentals that one must adhere to, to be sure. But part of the problem and part of the conflict is shutting your kid down and stamping out their enthusiasm when maybe, maybe they've got great ideas, A, and B, they've got their own personality here. Maybe I'm a great financial person, but maybe my kid's a great salesperson, and maybe their kid's a great logistics person. Take your skill and bring that skill to the business and bring that forward. You've got to enable that and you've got to foster that. So like an uh, older corporation, one that's crystallized in this thinking, and you have the breakthrough idea or the innovators within the company coming with a new idea, but often they need to reflect that when you point the finger to several pointing back at you and they must ask themselves a series of questions before they berate the previous generation. And one of those you talk about is, are they approaching the current generation in a manner that is respectful of the legacy they've created? It's funny. I see it over and over again. To your point, for the up and coming generation, it happens all the time, right? Somebody walks in the door, they've been there a week and they say, hey, this is all screwed up, right? Maybe it is, but you need to kind of pay your dues and figure out, demonstrate that you can do the work that we're doing here now, that you understand the work that we're doing here now and how we do it and why we do it and demonstrate all that. Then you can stand on a platform that says, hey, I think we need to consider some changes because you've demonstrated that you understand how it works, right? So you've built up some credibility. But the other thing, and this particularly happens from generation one to two, is that generation one is... It's a founding of a business, and you know, out of a hundred things, these five, ten things had to come together in order for this thing to work. But then, when the next generation comes in, they've got a college degree, maybe that I got a degree in business, maybe they're pretty bright, and they come and they look at this thing and they say, "Whoa, what are you guys doing? This thing isn't operating on a professional manner." And then they start criticizing back on the current generation of. Why didn't you do this, and why aren't you doing that, and why aren't you doing the other thing? And I've heard it, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times, they'd look back and say, well, you know, if you look at our financial statement, 
you'll see that it actually is working out okay without having done what you say. But the point is, is that in the first generation, you're focusing on the really critical things to make things happen, to make this business work, to make some money. You push to the side the things that are not as important or as irrelevant or so on and so forth. I've got a particular client that said, we don't know how much money that we need to fund this thing for. We're going to take two cents of every dollar and we're going to shove it in that bucket. When actually, professionally, you need to account for all of it. And the daughter was saying, you know, how, how ridiculous that you're not accounting for this. And he looked at her and said, we were too busy making and selling product to worry about how much money we were making. We were just making money. And that shut her up pretty quick. So be careful about poking into how they did it in the past if they're doing well, right? If you're doing well, great. That's an area where you can clean stuff up and we can do even better, right? So they've got the current generation got you this far. Let's just take it forward and try to make it better instead of being critical of the past. Yeah, but as you say, and as we see in innovation all the time, that is when you're dangerous, when you're in that kind of mode of, we're doing fine. We don't need to worry about the outside world. And you mentioned this, the world's moving so fast. And that's the point when you're complacent. It's an extreme weakness. It's a danger that every family business runs into. And I'm we're splitting hairs here a little bit. But yes, you take the current generation, they get to a point, the business is doing well, they're making a lot of money. And then you let that coast for five and 10 years and it keeps going and it keeps making money. It's not without innovating and going into the future and, and, and evolving, things aren't going to work. And the current generation gets a mindset that gets stuck saying, hey, we need to just keep doing what we're doing. And I become more and more and more conservative because I'm coming, frankly, I'm coming closer to the end of my life. And my risk tolerance is going down as I get older, right? So I don't want to risk anything. And hey, you're a 22-year-old. You got nothing to lose. You're ready to risk everything. Please don't come into my you know, $50 million business and start risking everything on your cockamamie ideas so it becomes a point of conflict to be sure you do a brilliant job of showing the type of diversity you need in a family business including board members and the different types of boards you can bring in etc i'd love if you shared a little bit about this every family business needs to have some kind of entity that functions as a board as a good as a good board i'm not saying a board but a good board people think any board and a lot of people think Oh, well, all these bad things will happen. Well, then you've got a bad board. But you need to have some kind of oversight. And part of having a good board is having some independence on there. Having independence is having somebody on that board that is not a family member, and it's not your friend, and it's not somebody who's going to be embarrassed to tell you that they disagree with you. They're not risking their, their financial future, and they're not risking their friendship. There's somebody that you don't know who knows something about this business. You pay them a little bit of money and you have them look at what you're doing as a business and they provide honest feedback to what you're doing. Now, when you're a smaller business, maybe this is just an external person, a group of people that you go to lunch with. But as you evolve further, having an actual functioning board with independent members is important. I want to tag onto that too. A lot of family businesses get hung up, and I'm diverging from our topic a little bit here. Just because, just because you have children doesn't mean that the best qualified people to run your business. Maybe they need to be mid-level managers and they can be good owners. And maybe you actually hire somebody from the outside who's really good at what they do to run your family business. And 
that's we did that with our family business. SC Johnson does it as a matter of course in between generations. You've got the family member running the business and the up and comer that actually comes up in the organization, and then you hire in one of the an outside person to be the president of the company. I become the chairman of the board, and now my child is reporting to the president of the company, who is a non-family member. And then at some point, if they make it, they be, run the company, and then they do it again, and then they do it again. Don't forget that bringing in non-family member people can be very important to the success of a family business. This is so important because it's diversity of thought as well. And you tell us one of the most important things to take from this book is that when a family member has worked in a different business or a different industry, the business itself, the family business, has a much higher survival rate. It does. And actually, there's two parts to that. But the specific part is this. The highest correlation to a family, to, to a successful family business transition from one generation to the next is when the next generation has spent some time in their life working somewhere else outside the family business. And the reason why many people think is because, hey, I developed these additional skills and knowledge of the outside world and so on and so forth, competitors or suppliers or whatever it may be. And that is, that is definitely very true. But the real reason is that it develops, it helps develop a mentality in somebody of, I'm going to call it an ownership mentality. You need to know who you are and what your skill set is and what your worth is in this world, disconnected from your family and from your network. Your whole life you've flown underneath your parents' wing, and in coming into the family business, you're going to fly underneath their wing from a business perspective. You need to go work for somebody else where your name is not on the door and the person you work for is not your parent and not your relative. It's just a business arrangement. And it's even better if you go live in a different city. Go establish your own life. This is the first building block for success is developing some sense of independence so that when you develop that sense of independence and you do come back to the family business, A, you can stand toe-to-toe with your dad or your mom and say, look, I hear you, but I disagree with you. And you stand your ground because you have your core beliefs that you developed from yourself, from within, not because you inherited them from your parent. Number one. Number two, one day when you are the owner of the company, you have to stand alone and make these decisions by yourself, right? You can ask your employees and you can ask your friends, but am I going to invest that million dollars in that new technology or am I not? And nobody can, nobody's there to tell you the right answer because it's your company. You decide. You do it on your own. Having that sense of independence that you've developed as a child somehow is going to help you be a good owner and have an ownership mentality once you are running the business and to be successful. That being all of a sudden left alone to make the decisions, it's so, so reminiscent of parenting. So you're trying to teach them to survive in the world without you. That's what you're trying to do. But you mentioned in the book, a huge area of concern, anxiety, and conflict in the family business is control over the family business, especially in the case of an untimely death. And procrastination is the deadly sin of estate planning. And you tell us 70% of people don't even have a will in place. And I loved what you do here with your clients where you do the heart attack drill. Right. You know, you don't always have to do that. The question that you're trying to put forward is, okay, there's leadership and there's control. Somebody's going to run this business, right? Let's go get the best 
person and people possible to run this business. There's a goose that lays golden eggs. Who are the best people to tend to this goose to make sure that it lays eggs and it's going to lay these good eggs forever, right? But that doesn't mean that you necessarily own the goose, right? You can hire somebody from the outside to run the business. But let's say it's somebody on the inside of the business. At the same time, there's control. Businesses have owners. And if you're the dad, you're 100% owner. But if you've got five kids and you've got two kids who are really good at the business working here, and then you've got one kid who's working here, but you know, doesn't always show up on time, but he's in sales and he's pretty good at what he does, but he's not really cut out to run the business. And then you may have two that are completely not in the business. Well, when you die, what are you going to do? You're going to give your estate equally to your kids. So now everybody has 20%, right? So now the two good people have 40%, but the majority of the ownership is sitting with your mid-level sales manager and two people that don't even work in the business. You need to give control of the business to the people who are actually in the know and leading the business. Those who are most capable need to have the control of the business. Now, it gets scary because the way I've drawn the picture is, okay, so wait, you're telling me that I have to give them a 50% to two kids and that leaves 49% for the other three and that doesn't seem fair. Well, you can equalize it with other assets that you have, number one. But number two, in an LLC, you can make them managing partners, which gives them control, or you can create voting shares, which is a different set of share group, which says when you have these shares, you have control of the business. But the other shares benefit in, in, in the financial end of things. So the point here is that whoever's leading the company, whoever's most capable, needs to have control over the business if you want that business to continue doing well in the future. And you mentioned there, Henry, the shareholding of the company. So that's with the family. But how do you attract middle management? This is absolutely key, bringing in outside middle management. And it's not friends of the family. It's actual professionals because you need to professionalize the company. How do you incentivize those guys? Because many that I talk to struggle at working for family businesses. Well, I'm going to flip it around. How do you not de-incentivize them? And that's usually the problem. And it's going back a little bit to entitlement. Anybody that joins a family business, anybody that joins any business, wants to be recognized for their contribution and their effort, and they want to be rewarded, right? This is, a, this is an arrangement that we have. You need some help. I can help you with that thing, and in return for me helping you for that with that thing, I want you to pay me for doing that. Because if you're not going to pay me, then I really I'm going to go find somewhere else to go. And oh, by the way, if I do a really good job, I want you to recognize that I did a good job, and then I want to be financially rewarded for that thing and recognized, and so on and so forth. However, in a family business, many times you can find a you know a philosophy that goes on that says, oh. That's only for family members, and you're only going to be in the know. Only family members are in the know, and only family members are going to get promoted. So I'm working hard, and I'm doing well, but I know that Junior over here, who is not as good as I am at doing this thing, is going to move up in the organization, and I'm not. So the point is, is you need to recognize that when you're promoting your children in different positions, and you're giving them opportunities, and you're giving them salaries, how does that look in comparison to the rest of the company? How do the other employees feel about that? And bringing this to a really fine point, when you're transitioning a family business 
from one generation to the next. One of the Achilles heels is that you need to make sure that you talk to your key non-family employees and say, hey, we're talking about this transition and we're thinking about doing this stuff. We haven't done anything. How do you feel about this? And they may say, hey, I thought I was going to run the company. What about me? And now you better take that into consideration because you don't want to lose this person. Or they might say, hey, I've always thought that was a good idea. I think your kid's great and I'm looking forward to working with him or her or them or whatever. And then there's points in between. But by golly, you better make sure that you have conversations with them because you've got key people in your company that are not family members that are making this machine work. And if they get unhappy, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, and you tell us throughout the book, communication is one of the number one skills so important in any business. But moving on to succession, one of the big challenges for many people, and this goes beyond family business owners, but even CEOs, sports players, anybody in a business, parents with empty nests, is letting go of who they used to be. So here I mean... If your identity is so intertwined with your work, and that is particularly the case with a family business, particularly if you were the founder and you built it with your blood, sweat, and tears, it's very difficult to let it go. And the number one succession issue facing a family business is the inability of the current leader to make space for the next generation. Part of the problem is that it's so counterintuitive. The way to lead family business through succession is to stop leading, and that is the difficulty. In my mind, there are three gates you have to get through for a successful transition. And this is, you know, number one, are your kids interested and capable and can they get there? But number two is the current generation has to get out of the way enough. You don't have to leave, but you got to start backing out just so you can give them space to get their hands on the wheel. They have to actually be doing the real work. How do you know they're going to be successful running the business in the future? have them run the business in the present, right? So I can ride the bike and show you how to ride the bike and I know how to ride the bicycle. But then I need you to get on the bicycle, right? And I need you to ride the bike. So the best way to know if my kid's going to be able to ride the bike or drive the car or run the business is to run alongside them while they're doing it, which means you can't ride the bike and you can't drive the car and you can't run the business because they're doing that and you're running alongside. So that, hey, they'll make some mistakes and you'll have to say, okay, is this, a, is this a normal mistake and they need to pick themselves up and learn from it and kind of keep going and get back on the bike and let's keep going? Or is there some fundamental problem where I need to come back in a little bit and say, hey, let me show you again how this works or, hey, maybe this is not your thing. There's a lot riding on this business being successful in the future. It's your legacy. It may be your retirement. It's your kid's future career. It's your kid's future self-esteem and meaning in life. And so it's really quite simple in language and in logic. If you want your business to be successful, you need to back out as soon and as much as you can when your kid is ready and let them do this and run alongside them. That's the best way to know whether or not they're going to be capable of doing this and groom them to be really good at doing this thing. Instead of saying, hey, I like doing this and I'm good at what I do and I like making the money and so on and so forth, you're putting each day that goes by, you're creating more risk that the succession will not go as well as it could the longer you stay in the business and the later it takes for them to get their hands on the wheel. 
Nice. And then there's the flip side of this, and we'll start landing the ship with this now, is when a child wants to tell their parents that they don't want to be in the family business, I loved what you said, and the way you phrased this is beautiful. This is the one of the best ways to say you're leaving. I am your child, I love you, and I will help you with whatever I can. But this is my life, and I want to pursue my own dreams. I think that's a beautiful way to phrase it. It is, and I'm going to take this from both sides. I mean, there's some, you know, hey, I would like you to have this business, and it would make me feel good if you took this business and want it to be cool. We can work together. A good family business is great because you get to work with your kids. You get to work with your family, right? You love your family, and we get to spend more time with each other. It's, it's wonderful when we get to do a project together and be successful at it. But, you know, people need to go pursue their own life dreams, and parents should not force their kids into or guilt them into running the family business. And so it can be very difficult to back out. And so, yeah, it really is a heart-to-heart that you're going to have to say, look, this is really not my thing, you know, and I, I know it's your thing. But there's two aspects of this. One is, I may want to do this business, but I don't want to do it as much as you did it. You love it, and you're a workaholic, and you work all the time at this thing. If I have to work that hard to do this, like ridiculously workaholic hard, no life balance, I don't want to do that. I'm here to tell the next generation you don't. You can get it structured so that you can. And I see it many times. But on the flip side, there's a lot of kids these days that say, hey, I want to go do my own thing, and I'm not sure that I want to join the family business. Many times I'm on the other side saying, I want to make sure you understand what you're giving up here, because this is a very lucrative opportunity for you that you can have by doing this thing, and you can get it structured so that it works for your life, and don't just flippantly go off and say, I want to do something else with my life. Make sure you realize what you're giving up, because many times... The opportunity to run your own show, it's really about your life. You make good money and you can pursue your other life dreams while running this business that you've got here. So think twice about giving up a family's business when it's running really well. Beautiful. And I pulled a quote that I'm going to sign off with today from the book that I love. In a family business, there is a permanent emotional relationship with your work colleagues. Families are lifelong social structures characterized by unqualified love and support among their members. You can quit your jobs, but you can't quit your family. I thought that would be a nice way for me to sign off this week. But before I do, I'd love if you shared your final call to action, perhaps after you tell us where we can find your work. Sure. It's real easy. We're called Family Business USA, which is kind of funny because we work all over the world. But FamilyBusinessUSA.com, the book is Dirty Little Secrets of Family Business. I'm Henry Hutchison, and three quick points. Are your kids sufficiently interested and capable? Can you get them there? Can the next generation back out enough to let your kids get their hands on the wheel? And number three is, can your kids get along once they're working together in the future? Those are three must-have gates in order to successfully go to the next generation. And if you work on those things, you can make it and you can do it. Author of 30 Little Secrets of Family Business, ensuring success from one generation to the next, Henry Hutchison, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Aiden. I appreciate it.